We are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 27 this morning. So, just right off the bat, here's what you got to know. This is a super weird chapter, right? It's just a really weird chapter. Not because the story is weird, but because something happens in this chapter that you don't see in the other chapters. Uh, Namely, that we don't really find the Lord mentioned in this chapter, which seems like Okay, I'm sure there's plenty of chapters in the Bible that don't really mention the Lord, right? That don't really say, like, the Lord did this, or the Lord instructed this, or the Lord said, you know, follow these ways. But here in our text this morning, it's a little bit more significant because the thrust of the book of 1 Samuel thus far has kind of been the Lord shaping the journey of the king of Israel, that he has always been one who is giving his insight and wisdom. He's, we're getting these little uh, breadcrumbs to understand how the story, how the narrative is to play out. For instance, as we looked at the text last week, we saw that David and uh, Abishai, they made their way into the heart of the army of Saul. Like he went all the way in and he was at Saul's, uh, as Saul was sleeping, he was like at Saul's head and he grabbed the spear and he grabbed the water jug and he got out of there. But we're told that this happened because the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and the army. And what we're in, led to believe there, what is implied is that the Lord is the one who allowed David to succeed. The Lord is the one who has continually been guiding David on his path. It's the Lord who has instructed David to go and do this, and the Lord has enabled him to have success. But as we come to the text this morning, we're not really given a lot of insight that, like, the Lord said to do this, or the Lord, uh, you know, uh, made a way for David to accomplish these things. What we find is that David does something, and all that David does, he has success in. Now, the question that we're led to ponder and that we're led to think about is, Because David was successful, does that mean it was the Lord? Was David successful uh, because the Lord enabled him to be successful? Or is the Lord going to make something good out of David's uh, activity that he's brought about? Now, as we understand that, as we look at that, what sits over the last couple chapters is this. That David has been struggling to trust God. We see this in chapter 24, 25, 26, and now in 27. He has been struggling to trust God. Although he, throughout the book, is pictured as a man of faith, of somebody who knows God and has been pursuing God, we do see that he has this struggle where he believes the promises of God, but yet also is having a hard time walking in those same promises or or not taking matters into his own hands. Now, I don't know about you, but that is very helpful for me because it's very relatable. This is how we often live, how we say, oh, yeah, like we're Christians. We want to do the things that God wants us to do. But then are we taking matters into our own hands? Are we going our own way? Are we making our own path? What David has to understand and what it seems like he believes from the very beginning is this, that God will indeed fulfill his promise to raise up a king. The beginning of the book starts with Israel not having a king. The beginning of the book starts with, uh, you know, everything in shambles. They're coming out of the period of judges into the text. And as, as it opens up, Samuel is raised up as a prophet to help guide the nation. And the Lord acts as king over Israel. 
But shortly thereafter, Israel demands that they want a king. They want a king to be like the other nations. And so the Lord concedes and says, okay, well, you guys are hard-hearted. I'm going to give you this guy called Saul. So out comes Saul. He becomes a king, and he's told, you will be a successful king if you obey, if you follow my ways. Because remember, Saul is never intended to be a king with his own autonomy, doing his own thing as he pleases. Saul is intended to be a figurehead, to represent the Lord. As the Lord gives instruction, as the Lord directs, Saul is intended to simply act as the visible manifestation of what the Lord is calling his people to do. Now Samuel, or excuse me, Saul, uh, he doesn't want to do this. He wants to go his own way. He comes up with his own ideas. He wants to act in his own way. He wants to be his own man, his own king. He wants to come up with his own policies. And this leads them into great trouble. And as a result, at some point, uh, Saul is rejected as the king and David is anointed as the new king. And so this idea of who is the king sits over the entire book. And, and here, what we're intended to see that Despite all the things that are happening, the Lord will be faithful to raise up a king. And David has been anointed king, and he believes that he will be this king who God told him uh, that he will be the, the future king at some point. But sometimes he doesn't act as if he believes that. Sometimes he doesn't act as if that will come to pass, that it will be true. He fails to believe in God's promise to him. And this is the context that kind of sits over this passage. It seems as though he's learned his lesson in the past couple of chapters. We have a pattern that's kind of repeating. He's given another opportunity. But we find this time, it's up to us to kind of discern what's really going on with David here. Is he walking in obedience? Is he doing the things that he's supposed to be doing? Or is he kind of going his own way? I think as we move through the text, you'll discover it's a bit of both. This is the way that we always live as Christians, that we, we fall into these seasons where it's like, I'm trying to do the right thing, I want to do the right thing, but then we find our own way. Whether we're motivated by fear, whether we're motivated by, you know, some sense of urgency or pressure of time that we feel like, okay, well, I've got to make a decision because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. I got, this is, there's some sort of, of, that's something that's clamping down upon me. I've got to, I've got to move to make a decision, Right? These things are the things that tend to control us. And David here, he seems to be in this same situation. If you recall last week, we ended chapter 26 with David and Saul kind of parting ways. Saul's like, hey, come, you should just come home. And David's like, I absolutely do not trust you. Right? But what did David also say before that? He said, I'm going to cast my lot with the Lord. I'm going to say that the Lord will judge between us, that the Lord will keep me safe, that the Lord, whatever I do, he will be with me. So he's saying to Saul, no matter what, Saul, no matter if you're trying to get me, the Lord's going to be the one who sustains me. I'm going to trust the Lord. But as we come into chapter 27, we get another glimpse into the heart. We get another glimpse into David's heart, right? Because what does he say from the very beginning? Verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So here's what happens David gets done with this situation. Maybe he spends a little time pondering it. And he realizes, like, I'm super exhausted. I'm tired of running from Saul. 
I'm tired of trying to escape him. And so he begins this dialogue within himself. He begins a dialogue within his own heart, we're told, right? Now, we've gone over this before. We've gone over this before, right? If you ever deal with your heart, we've said from the very beginning, the worst advice that you could ever follow is follow your heart. Don't ever follow your heart. It's bad news. The scripture says it's terrible. It's full, it's evil and full of deadly poison. Who can know it, right? So don't follow your heart. People will tell you, follow your heart. Be like, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Do not follow your heart, right? Because your heart is bound up in like, it's compromised in all sorts of emotion and sin and, and, and wanting what you want, right? You can't follow your heart because your heart's messed up, right? It'd be like having a broken GPS and you're like, oh yeah, that's great, right? I'm trying to head to this one spot and it's taking you in the complete opposite direction. And it's like, but it says I got to go there. Like, this is what it really wants to do. So I got to go. It's like, that's a terrible idea. Don't follow your heart, right? People post those, like, you know, you get those things coming across your screen or memes, just be like, nah, nope, downvote, no, not happening. Don't follow your heart, number one, okay? Why? Because the scripture says our hearts are messed up. What we need is a renewed heart, a transformed heart. You can only follow your heart if your heart is renewed and transformed by Christ. Because then you're given a new heart, a clean heart, a new creation that desires his desires. So you can't go your own way. What David did here was he began to follow his heart. He began to think about what he wanted to do. He started to think about all the circumstances and situations in his life. He's speaking to himself and he's getting overwhelmed. Maybe he starts making a pros and cons list. Stay in Israel. Here's all the good things about it like run to the Philistines. Here's all the good things about that. And he just looks at the list. He's like, oh yeah, it makes more sense to go over here. Bad idea. What you should always do and what we always talk about, if you are thinking, praying about something, if you're trying to figure something out, you have to pray about it. You have to bring it to the Lord. He ponders this in his heart. He doesn't bring it to the Lord. Hey, what do you want to do, God? He ponders it in his own heart, right? And then he doesn't discuss it with anybody else. He just all up in his own business. You have to bring it to the Lord, and then you have to bring it to the community so that way they can say, no, don't follow your heart. You're blind. You don't know what you're doing. You're going the wrong way. This is the way we should be going. Here's what the scriptures say. We need to remind each other of these things. That's why we submit to one another within the community of faith. And David says here, if he would have been with some other people who would have been helping him out, if he would have brought this to the Lord, he would have gotten straightened out a little bit here, right? Because he said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the, uh, to the land of the Philistines. Right? So his, his observation is this. I'm tired of running. I'm, I'm done with Saul. i got to get out of here because if I don't get out of here, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Now, David is using like absolutely no logic here because just in the previous chapter, he's standing there with Saul at his foot with Abishai, and Abishai's like, let's kill him. And David's like, well, if, if Saul's going to perish, he's going to perish at the hands of the Lord. And here, now he's saying, well, if I'm going to perish, I'm going to perish at the hands of Saul. He's content to not kill Saul because he wants to let the Lord handle that business, but he doesn't think that the Lord's going to protect him. He's convinced that Saul's going to perish one day at the hand of the Lord if I don't leave Israel. 
But he's like, but for some reason, the promise that God made to me, that's not going to come to pass. He's understanding the truth, but he's not applying it to himself. It's a, it's a tricky balance here. Just because he understands it, just because he knows what it is, doesn't mean that he's going to automatically apply it to himself. Or he's going to apply it to himself in the correct way. There's a nuance here that exists within the motives of the heart. You have to ask, why is he making the decisions? Why is he going this way? What are the implications of not doing this? You see, David is discouraged. He doesn't see a path to victory. He doesn't see how this, this comes to pass. He's forgotten God's past faithfulness. He's lost sight of what the Lord has done. And so he's like, okay, like, I just got to get out of here because like, otherwise he's going to kill me. So he comes up with this plan. If I leave, Saul's going to stop paying attention to me. He's not going to come into the land of the Philistines to chase me down, and then I'll be safe. So, verse 2, David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived at Achish, with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with, the, with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. So, now, this is David's second venture into uh, the city of Gath. The first time that he went to Gath, he was by himself. He was on the run from Saul. He didn't have anybody there. And so he got there, and then they kind of discovered who he was. And so he pretended like he was like this like mentally insane person and was like drooling all over his beard and like scratching on the gate and acting like he was just totally insane. But now as he shows up, it's a different approach this time. He's accompanied by this army. He's got 600 men with him. So he just like kind of marches up with a little bit more force, a little bit more power. He's not as worried about his approach here. And so he comes up to the king of Gath, uh, this guy um, who's called Achish, right? And he says, yo, can we, uh, can we stay here? Can we stay here for a little bit? Now, as a practical note, remember, as we look back in chapter 21, what we said here is that this guy Achish, that's just like kind of a name for like the Philistine kings. This is probably isn't the same Achish that was in the previous chapter. So he wasn't like, oh, like, hey, like, you're like the same guy, but you're like a little bit less crazy now. Like, that's, this is not, right? Like, this is just kind of like a title for this individual. So David gets there, and he finds uh, some sort of safety with the Philistines. He's got his 600 men. Everyone's got their own little place to camp out in the city of Gath. <coughs> Was this a good idea? Well, in terms of, David's purpose, it seems to be successful. Look at verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So Saul gets word, hey, David's not even in Israel anymore. I don't need to stop. I'm not going to go and hunt him there. His, his plan, totally successful. Set out the goal. I'm going to go here. Saul won't get me. I'm going to be able to have success. Now, remember what David also said to Saul? He said, I don't want to be driven from the land. Perhaps he felt like he was driven from the land, that Saul would keep hunting him. But David's ultimate goal was to be in relationship with God. He's like, I don't want to be driven in the, out of the land and let my blood be shed outside of the land of Israel where I can worship with my people, where I can come to, uh, to the house of the Lord and to celebrate him. But it seems that David was prioritizing his own safety, his own peace of mind, because he can't worship the Lord in this same manner in uh, the land of the Philistines. He can't do this in Gath. There's no uh, opportunity for the people of God to gather in the house of the Lord and to celebrate him. 
But David has success in one of his goals that he set out. You see, David has forgotten who is the king, right? He's forgotten the promise of who is the king. And he's swapped the promise that he was going to be the king. He's said, I might die. I might never be the king. And so Saul, who's the current king, who's trying to get me, he's going to get me if I don't get out of here. All the while, he's forgotten that God is the king, the true king. He's also forgotten who he is in relationship to God. He's letting his fear control him because now he puts himself under the yoke of another king, a pagan king, the Philistine king, Achish. He says, I'm going to come and serve you. I'm going to come and dwell with you. Right? This is why he opens up in verse 5 and he says, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, when in, like, how in the world is like the future king of Israel trying to find favor in the eyes of a pagan king? Makes no sense. If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of you the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the city or in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So the last time that David went to Gath, the last time that he made it there, he was just barely at the gates. They identified him. They found out who he is. Like He's like this great war hero. They capture him. They bring him before Achish. And they're, they're trying to tell him, like, yo, king, like this guy, he's known as being one who, who like they have songs about him. They, they sing of him in dances. Like Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're like, look, well, look who we got here. We got to kill this guy. And David pretends, right? They want to kill him. He pretends like he's crazy. Now, this is David's second like, time he's moved into the city, and he's like, look, like someone's going to figure this out. Someone's going to figure this out. If I stick around here last time, I didn't last long. They wanted to kill me, so i got to get out of here. So then he cooks up this plan, and he tells Achish, why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Like, what? Like, he's trying to be all deferential and be like, look, it doesn't look good that I have like all my 600 troops here chilling in like the city. Like, maybe people are going to think I'm going to start taking over. And like, this is the capital. Why should I be here? Why should I be with like this group of people? So he's like, give me, give me a city of my own and we'll get out of here. We won't be dwelling in the same town, taking your glory. So Achish responds and he gives him this city called Ziklag, Right. Now, this city is noteworthy because it's close to Israel's border, but it originally belonged to the tribe of Judah, right? Where it's noted in Joshua 15 in the allotment that this city is given to uh, the tribe of Judah. So this was a city that was captured by the Philistines, and it was on the border there, and he is allotted this city that previously belongs to Judah by, uh, by Achish. And David has a plan. Look at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of, of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. 
And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Jeremiahites or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So David gets to this city, Ziklag, right? Now, Ziklag is on the border. Used to be a a city that belonged to uh, the tribe of Judah. And as he was there... uh, Achish gave him this city because he kind of expected that David would go and he, he's kind of been spurred, he's been driven out of Israel, and so he was going to be super mad. He was going to give him this sitting next to uh, Israel, and he was going to lead these little raid parties out into Israel to go and attack them, to show them that they were wrong. He's going to go and, uh, and, and lead these little raids to destroy the cities of Israel. Now, a calculated error here by Achish. One, because he seemed to be pretty enamored with David. He's like giving him kind of all that he asks for. He gives him a city without any supervision. He's just like, yo, like you're gonna, you can have this town. Go ahead with all your people there and you guys can rule this area. But also, Ziklag wasn't just close to Israel's border. It was also close to other tribes that lived in this particular region that were historically Israel's enemies. Right? This gave David an opportunity to benefit the people of Judah by attacking their enemies, by coming out against these varying people groups and also deceiving Achish. And so he makes these raids against these three groups, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now, what's going on here? See, this is another instance where we're like, okay, well, David's going out and he's making this raid here. And it seems that he has absolutely great success. One, uh, in doing this, what he's doing is he's picking up the mission that was given to Israel all the way back uh, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, as they made their way to the promised land, David is picking up this mission. Because these people should have been conquered as enemies as they made their journey to the promised land. But they were not. And so these people already stood under God's judgment here. Right? We read some of this in Exodus chapter 17, the Lord speaking to Moses said, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, We get a little bit more of a description in uh, Deuteronomy 20, but I want to look quickly at Joshua 13, 13, where he said that the Lord has given more land to be possessed for the people of God. But yet we find in Joshua 13, the people of Israel did not drive out the Gershites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. So they didn't finish their job. They didn't do what God asked them to do. And here, David is positioned in the city and he's like, well, I'm going to be the future king and we have unfinished business and I haven't done it. So I'm going to do the good good things that, that the people of God are supposed to do. And as he does this, 
he has success. In fulfilling these commandments, in fulfilling this law, it does two things. One, David doesn't incur blood guilt as he did in the previous chapter because these people already stood under the judgment of, uh, of the Lord all the way back from these other passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua, right? So he kind of he gets taken care of there, but then he's also trying to act in obedience in what the king should have done. He does this and attacks the enemies of Israel. But it's ironic in what he's doing here because as he goes out to fight these battles, he trusts the Lord to protect him and to give him victory over Israel's enemies but he doesn't trust the Lord to protect him from Saul. It's not that David's like, well, I don't want to go into any battles or like, I don't want to put myself in any danger. It's this one particular situation where he's like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to give up my safety, my security by being in the land of Israel. He has success, but is this what the Lord's asking him to do? Again, the Lord is absent from the, from the text. We don't get him saying it was successful because the Lord was with David or the Lord allowed them a great victory. It, nothing is attributed to the Lord in the chapter like we would find in the previous chapters. We're led to keep asking this question, who is the king? Who is the king? David had to face Achish again and again. And when Achish would ask him, like, hey, how's it going? Where was your raid today? Achish would see the spoils of war coming back. He'd be like, oh, awesome. We got, like, all these new sheep. We've got, like, all this new cattle, camels. Like, David is wrecking shop. He's just going out there and just destroying. And, and in the meantime, David is benefiting by receiving the sustenance that he needs. He's feeding his people. He's feeding the city. Achish is getting the main spoils of, of these uh, raids. And so he's happy. And it seems that uh, Achish is so enamored with David that like, he doesn't really even do any research into like, hey, like, what's going on here? Like, how is, how is David having all this success? Because David would come back and say, well, uh, when he's like, where have you made a raid today? He would say, against the Negeb of Judah, right? Now, you probably don't know what a Negeb is, but basically it's just like a desert territory area, right? He's like, I went out and I, I made war in like this kind of desert area of Judah, or I went out to where the Kenites lived and I fought against them. Now, these are Israel's people. So David is telling Achish, like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm fighting against Israel and I'm crushing them and, you know, I've really destroyed the Kenites this time. And all the while, he's like knocking off all these other peoples, Right, some some who are even um, who are like potentially allies of the Philistines. He's making a better position for uh, Judah, who lives in this territory. And Achish, he's all the while blinded to this. He believes the lie. Look at verse twelve. <coughs> and Achish trusted David, thinking. He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Now, David is helping Israel, and he's fooling Achish this entire time. But at the same time, he's also convincing Achish, even more so, that he can be counted on. 
And this leads to David putting himself in the position now of being revealed as a traitor. Because Achish wanted David and his men to join the Philistine army in this massive attack on Israel. Look at verse, uh, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. So he's like, look, I'm calling upon you guys now. It's time to fight. It's time for you to join us in battle. You're, we're going to go out and we're going to fight Israel, and you're going to be my special forces. We're going to go out and we're going to kill them all. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Verse 2, and David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, what in the world is going on here? Because David's like, yo, you know what I can do. <laughs> like, what is he, what, like, it's kind of like said in this sort of weird, jargony way, like where it's like, we're almost led to believe like he's try, trying to like say something in a response to like Achish, like, yeah, you know what I can do. Like, you know what skills I have, how, like, how I've been wrecking shock. But he's not exactly also saying like, yeah, we're definitely going to fight for you, Achish. He's, he's like not really committing to it. It's like he's kind of bragging a little bit about like how successful and how great they are. He's taking this perspective where he's trying to assure him and kind of walk this line and figure out like, am I going to like really do this? But I imagine that he's left at the same position that he started with. Who is the king? Now he's forced to encounter the question again. Oh man, which king do I serve? Am I better struggling? Was I better struggling with Saul trying to kill me? I want to serve the Lord as the king, but now I have this other king who's asking me to serve him. Who is the king? Historically, David has always believed that despite Saul's evil, despite all the things that he's seen Saul do, despite the fact that Saul has, has brought forth uh, you know, the, the priests and killed them and had, had um, what's his name? I forget. Just went out of my mind. I almost said Dagon, but it's not Dagon. Come on, help me out, somebody. Uh, he, <laughs> he's not, he, <laughs> never mind. The priests got killed. That's basically what happened, right? And then they went to the city and they wrecked shop at Nob. And here, even in the midst of like that deep, dark time, in the midst of that, David still believed that God would raise up a king. David believes it, but sometimes he doesn't act as if it's true. He understands that on paper it's true, but sometimes he doesn't apply it to his life. And it seems that the Lord is absent here so that way we are able to ask this same question of ourselves. Like, what is happening? Just because there are things that seem to be good, that seem to be godly, that seem to be correct, are those truly the right way? Again, we're not looking to do things that are good, we're looking to obey what God is doing. 
We're looking to ask him, where are you going and what are you doing and how are you working? And that requires relationship, not a list. Not a pros and cons list. Not a list of definitions. It's a list of relationship where you're in communion with the Lord, where you're discussing with him. What are you doing? What are you passionate about? What is your heart, God? It's easy to pull out, to pull out you know, lists. We love those because then you can put that up against something. I know for me, at work, I'm always trying to get people to put things into lists so that way I can be like, success was met. Right? Nobody can possibly be mad. Like I did all the things. Qualified, check, 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 check. But living in that, in that area where you have to press into relationship is difficult. It's difficult with people, less difficult with the Lord because he desires for you to know his heart. He desires for you to be equipped with all that you need to obey him, to find joy in him. If you're asking, what should I do in my life? How should I live? How do I navigate life? You come to him because he wants to give you everything that you actually need. Not that you want, that you need. What you need. I remember in high school, the kind of the first times where I kind of got my like, little taste of freedom. You know, it was like, okay, you get to go off campus you like go out and get snacks. And it's just like, that is the time where you realize like all the things you need are, are different than the things that you want. And then you realize like the wisdom of your parents, right? You're just like, oh, okay, like I see why there are particular things here. First time it happened, I was like, okay, great. Like I got to go off campus, went, went to the grocery store with my friends. And we're just like, this is amazing. Like, we're just out here. How much candy can we buy? How many cookies can we buy? Just like, we have no rules. Like, we're just doing whatever we want. This is amazing. We didn't go sit, grab like all these packs of cookies and go sit and eat them in the parking lot. And then after you just like have this massive bellyache, this huge like, like pile of cement in your stomach and you feel terrible. And you're just like, okay, well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> you realize that what you want is not what you need. Tastes good going down, but after you regret it, you realize that it was empty. And the reason why we get in those situations where we're trying to give, where we're trying to seek what we want rather than what we need is because we're asking that same question, who is the king? And what you have to realize in your own life is that you are not the king. You're not the best king. You don't know what you really need. Because your heart is messed up. You need a new heart. And the only way to get a new heart is to come to the king. The true king. Jesus said he would give a new heart to those who belong to him. That he would take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. That he would write his law upon that heart. That it would be designed to be in relationship with him. See, Jesus knew that we would need this new heart. He knew that we would be faithless and that we needed to understand and see his faithfulness. We fail to believe in God's faithfulness. This is why we get ourselves in trouble. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation we're dealing with, it's like there's no way 
that this is going to work out. There's no way that these things are going to come to pass. Right? Now, partially the reason is because we think that we know what needs to come to pass. We think, oh, I'm waiting on God to do this and it's not happening. And so I'm getting upset because what I wanted to happen is not happening. Right? Again, you are not the king. So you don't get to determine what happens. You obey the king. We fail to believe in God's faithfulness, that he will already do what he wants for us, that what we need, not what we want. He's made a way for us to come to him despite our unbelief. Because he knows that we will already have this unbelief. He's, he's already counteracted our unbelief in his faithfulness by demonstrating his faithfulness in order to give us a place that we can believe, that to move us to believe. <coughs> He's done this precisely by demonstrating his faithfulness at the cross. And so the answer to our unbelief in his faithfulness to us is to precisely look to the cross where we see his faithfulness. To be reminded of what he has done for us, which pays for our sin of unbelief which pays for our, our short-sightedness in valuing his glory and who he is. And it, again, reminds us of his faithfulness. And when we're reminded of his faithfulness, we're reminded that, as Paul tells us in Romans, when we were his enemies, when we were far from him, when we didn't want him at all, he was already thinking of us. It's one thing for someone to be loving and caring and, and, and to demonstrate their love when, they know, when, when you're asking them and saying like, hey, I really have a need. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really lacking in this particular area. I'm really in trouble here. Can you help me? Of course, it's, it's loving for someone to respond in that way. But what Jesus is being described as one who goes and meets that need based on our discovery of that need. Before we even know that we're in trouble, he's like, I got you. So that way, by the time we realize, we don't have to be in a place of despair and say like, I don't know what the heck is going on in life. I don't know how to navigate this. As soon as we discover that we have a need, he's like, I got you covered. I was, all, I was ready all along because I know that you would come to a situation like this. I know that you would come to this moment in life where you realize I have a need. He's like, I've got an answer. And his answer is to give you a new heart. To give you a new heart that treasures him, that is finding its ultimate joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Because he knows he's the only one that can really truly satisfy us. A heart that is willing to come into submission to the king who loves fiercely and faithfully. And so, although the king is absent in the text, he's ever-present because we're always meant to ask, who is the king? Who is the king? We want to respond in such a way that we acknowledge not David as the king, not Saul as the king, but Jesus as the king. The only one who's not failed. The only one who's faithful and true.
Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness and kindness to us, and we pray that you would help us to grow in faith and to trust you. And Lord, we confess that there are many areas that we do not trust you in, that we do need your your help, and we need your wisdom, and we need your love. Lord, and you know, you know our hearts. As David wrote in, in the Psalms, to search and know and try us, to see if there's any wicked way in us. But Lord, we want to rely on your faithfulness and your goodness. And we know that you've, you've proven it again and again. You ever live to make intercession for us, Lord, and so we respond to you as our king, as our Lord, as our mediator. <coughs> and so, Lord, may you be glorified in your church as we respond to you. We love you. Amen.